Okay, we are going to be back in the Gospel of John this morning, so if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to John chapter 11. Uh, many of you who were here last week saw the, uh, <clears throat> the amazing story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, um, so we get to continue on with that narrative this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there are some black Bibles in the chairs in front of you and around you. We'll be on page 898. So if you will, would you please stand as I read from God's Word. We're going to be in John 11, starting in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish." He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples." Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many of them went up to the country, up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... uh, 
the stories of redemption, the miracles that we see not only in the Gospels, but what we've just seen in the Wiggins family, a, a beautiful picture of uh, adoption, of you adopting us as your children, as a loving father, and opening up your home and, uh, to us, and, and all that that entails and that brings to us. It brings us the, the grace of the creator of the universe. It brings us the love of the, the God who created all things, and will you welcome us in? And Lord, thank you for that picture that we saw this morning. And Lord, we ask for eyes to see this morning on how uh, we see individuals respond to Jesus, how uh, they responded to hearing and seeing the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Lord, it was an event not unique to them, but we still see you raising individuals from the dead spiritually, changing uh, dead hearts and breathing life into us. And so, Lord, I pray that all of us that have seen that, uh, see the ways in which these people respond, that they would uh, in, uh, inform us on ways in which we can respond to you and the greatness of how you declare that you are Jesus, the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, we'll be seen. Hey, Peter, come up here real quick. I got something else. I had, I had, a, I had a coach one time. Teach me there's two types of class. There's first class and there's no class, all right? Wise wisdom. Look at the way this guy is dressed right here. This is first class, right? I love it. I can learn some lessons for you. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. First class. He's really shy. I love it. He picked that outfit out. That's a beautiful thing. All right, I've entitled a message this morning. What is your response to Jesus? What is your response to Jesus? I want to start out asking the ladies a question. All right, ladies, are you with me? Are you ready? You dialed in? What is the most expensive brand of perfume that you own? Right? What, 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 is, the, what is the one that you break out on special occasions? You know? You know that one that you have set aside that makes your man's head just go, whoo! What is, what is that? You know, he's walking around like a dog with his nose in his air, you know, following you around because you smell so good, right? Now, I'm not up on the perfume market, so I had to do a little research on it and, and their costs, and, and you'd be surprised at how expensive perfume is. Maybe you ladies aren't, but I was just like, whoa. And there's, I, I, there's, there's, there's a top 10. I picked the five most expensive perfumes on the market. Now, this all kind of uh, varies depending on the size of the bottle, usually measured in ounces, so here are the top five. First, you have Caron's Porvey, $2,000 a bottle, right? That's number five. Then you have Clive Christensen, number one, $2,100. All right, not bad. And then you have this one from the Middle East, uh, Bacharach Les Larmas Sacré de Thibes. <laughs> Write that one down, right? Uh, that's basically $7,000 for this little bottle. has frankincense and myrrh in it to provide you with that Middle Eastern scent, they said. Then you have Clive Christensen's number one, the Imperial Majesty. And now it starts getting a little bit higher, $200,000 to $400,000 for a little bit of perfume. And then you have the number one, uh, DKNY Golden Delicious Million Dollar Perfume, and it sells, retails for $1 million. Now, of course, that one has like 3,000 gems in it as well, so you might not even count that one. But I mean, that's amazing, right? Like some of this perfume, paying that amount of money, it better, be, it better do more than make you smell good, right? I mean, you better well sprinkle some in the backyard and have a money tree or something grow out of that. I mean, but this is what we just read about. I asked the question because we just read about Mary's response to 
to her seeing Jesus raise her brother Lazarus from the dead. And out of her response, out of gratitude, out of love for Jesus, she pours out some expensive perfume, as we will see, on Jesus' feet and body. In our text this morning, um, we will see several responses to Jesus uh, that, ra- that just raised Lazarus from the dead, proving that he's the Christ and the Son of God. And again, this response is not only unique to the, uh, the event back then, to Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, but also has implications for you and me. If we truly believe Jesus is the Son of God, uh, it has implications for our lives. It has certain responses that should flow from our hearts into action. So let's see what some of these responses might be in our lives. The first response we see is of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And really the first response is the hardness of unbelief. The hardness of unbelief. That's what we see in verses 46 through 57. Follow along as I read 46. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary had seen what he did and believed him. And we also ended that in 12.11. We see that there was a number of people that saw... Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They were there. They were with Mary and Martha, and they were first grieving with him because of the death of their brother. But then Jesus comes on the scene and raises him, and many Jews believe. So that's good. But verse 46 says this, But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And what we're going to see in the next couple of verses are some of the saddest scriptures, uh, some of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. Verse 47 says this, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered and the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Some saddest words uh, of Scripture right there. We see these little spies, these little tattletales, these little narcs. They see Jesus do this miracle to prove uh, who he says he was, the Son of God, by raising Lazarus from the dead. And their first inclination is to go to the Pharisees and the scribes. This council called the Sanhedrin. Uh, I mean, I just want to remind you what the Sanhedrin is. It was a group of 70 men made up of Sadducees and Pharisees, and they had one chief priest or one high priest, and they were the ruling class of the nation. They, they led Israel. And um, let me define these two groups for you because it's a very important. Again, the Sadducees, they were the majority of the group. They were, uh, uh, they were the uh, theological liberals of the bunch, of the day. Uh, they only believed in the first five books of Moses, not all of the Old Testament books. And they loosely believed in them. They didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, they were more, um, more of a political machine than a religious machine. These were the Sadducees, and we see really not much has changed in the last 2,000 plus years. Huh? We see a number of these groups out there. They're not called Sadducees, but they're named by a number of different names using Jesus for their own gain. And then we had the, mon- the minority group was the, the Pharisees. They were the theological conservatives of the day. If, if the crossing was back in this day and lived in this context, we would line up with the Pharisees. We would be and follow the Pharisees. Again, they were the theological conservatives of the day. Uh, They believed in the whole of the Old Testament. They believed that God's word was inerrant, that those books was God literally speaking to them uh, through those scriptures. Uh, They believed in the supernatural. They believed in angels and they believed in demons. They believed in life after death. They believed in a resurrection. And they were much more of a, a religious machine than a political machine. So these are the two groups that make up this group called the Sanhedrin. And we see that they're gathered here, and they say if they do nothing, everyone will believe in Jesus. 
And we're like, amen, right? Why is that not a good thing? Well, it's not a good thing because then they would have to admit that Jesus is truly indeed the Messiah, the Savior, and they would lose all their power and they would lose all their influence. Uh, And they didn't like that. They liked the seat of the table that they sat in. They liked telling people what to do and having people follow them. They liked that power. They liked people serving them and their agenda, and they didn't want to see that change. So therefore, they wanted to do something with Jesus. Now, two really interesting things are going on here that we can pull out from this text, from their responses. The first is, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, as we just described, were at two opposite ends of the worldview. They looked at life totally different than one another. And in fact, they hated each other. I mean, it's a lot like what we see up on Capitol Hill today. We see Republicans and Democrats constantly at each other's throats, seemingly not getting anything done. Why? Because they come at one situation, one issue from two different worldviews, and they want to win. They want their worldview to succeed. We see that is the same with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. History tells us that they hated each other. So why do we read in verse 47, we see these, these words such as, what are we going to do? If we let them go on like this, we are going to lose our nation. All of a sudden, this group that hates each other is on the same team. All of a sudden, they're unified. And what unifies them? It's their hatred for Jesus more than their hatred for one another. They see Jesus as a threat, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to their lifestyle. And they say, we got to come together to destroy this man. Uh, the, the boys and I, uh, the ladies had TLC Bunko Night throwing dice at the Santini's house, which was cool. So the boys didn't want to come and, and hang out with all those ladies. We got out of Dodge, right? So we went to do what men do. We saw Thor, right? We saw a good man movie. We saw Thor. Great movie, by the way, right? But you have the kind of the same thing. You have Thor and Loki who don't seem to get along, want to have two different agendas. They come together to destroy uh, their own sister, because she was a wicked, wicked woman. She was a wicked woman. But it's the kind of the same thing we see here. So we see first that people's response to Jesus is it brings people together that hate each other, but it brings them together to destroy Jesus. They want to eradicate Jesus from their lives, from their culture. And we see the same thing today. Groups that have nothing in common and in fact are at odds with one another in our culture will bind and bond together uh, on many different social issues. They will team up to try and bounce Jesus Christ and his word out of our culture. We see that happening all around us today. Second thing we see that's really interesting, is notice that they are not refuting Jesus just raised Lazarus from the dead. Do do you see them saying, this didn't really happen? No, in fact, they they say, yeah, it did happen. They, They bring affirmation to it. For this man performs many signs. So not just Lazarus raising him from the dead, but when he healed the blind man, when he called the lame man to walk, when he turned the water into wine, when he does all these other miracles, all these other signs, they're, they're not denying them. They're like saying, this guy does these things. And that's, that's crazy, right? Because in our worldview, seeing is what? Believing, right? Seeing is believing. It was the same back then, but we see the faultiness of that. Just because you see doesn't mean you're going to believe. And what does that do? That gets down to the root of unbelief. That gets down to the root of a hard heart. That gets down to Romans chapter 1, where it says, By who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
That is what happens. That is the fruit of a hard, dark, unregenerate heart is unbelief. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what truth is presented to them. If their hearts aren't changed by the grace of God, they will see Jesus as an enemy. And they will rebel from him. They will suppress the truth again, no matter how clear the evidence is. I mean, does it get any clearer of you being there and you seeing Jesus raise a dead man to life? It doesn't get any clearer than that. And we can kind of get this, right? We see this happen today. No matter how clear the evidence is out there about God, about Jesus, about what he's done, um, people still disbelieve. People still want to eradicate Jesus from their lives and from this culture. There's a number of ways we could do it. Now, as I said, and I prayed that Jesus continually, daily, resurrects people from the grave, from the dead, spiritually, right? Not as... The physical aspect that we looked at Lazarus also points to a, a spiritual reality that people outside of Christ have dead hearts. We're rebels. We want nothing to do with Jesus. Sin rules us in our agenda. And so the grace of God, the spirit of God, informed by the gospel of God, by repenting and believing, God raises dead men and women to life, gives us new hearts, puts the Holy Spirit in us, and now we are alive. Now that's tough to see at some levels, right, physically. Now some people say, man, Aaron, I knew you were walking this way, but man, your life has totally changed. And so people can see that, but, but some people will pass that off of just, hey, he just wants to be a good guy, or you know, now he's just you know, being a good moral person, and blah, blah, blah. But let's look at creation, something that's even undeniable. Uh, Jacob Lease, we had a little life group this week. Jacob's like, oh, he just called me out. What am I going to do here? He, he got the new iPhone X, right? The iPhone 10. And that thing is phenomenal, man. He's trying to play around with it and trying to figure it out, and it doesn't have any buttons on it. It, it, it. it unlocks itself by just looking at it. It recognizes your face, right? And so, you know, he gave it to Eric Bros, and he locked it, and he had Eric Bros look at it, and it said, you know, denied or unlocked, you know, locked. You can't get in. And then Jacob looked at it, and it was just like opened. And you're like, whoa. People look at the iPhone, and they see all that technology, all the design, all the creativity, and they don't say, oh, that just came to being by accident, right? Oh, that just happened to, to come together and create this great phone. No, they said there's a designer, there's a creator, there's a team that had a mind and thought up and put parts together and engineered it and then you know, manufactured it and then sold it. That's how we got the iPhone. And yet when we look at creation, when we look at the human body that is, is a million times more complicated, more complex than the iPhone, people immediately say, oh, accident, right? That's just a bunch of mathematical equations that happened that Earth just popped in out of existence, out of nothing. We, we just kind of came from this one single simple organism and became more, the most complex thing ever. They deny and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because their hearts are hard. And so this is the response of the Pharisees. This is the response of the Sadducees. This is the response to some of your friends and family. This was some of our responses before Jesus grabbed our hearts, wasn't it? It was to reject Jesus because we didn't want Jesus ruling our kingdom. We wanted to rule. So there's a couple reactions um, to how to respond. And, and also something else interesting in here, and it happens in verse 49. They, 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 they come together again. They're usually against one another, but they come together in unity to debate how to handle Jesus. What, 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 what can we do to get rid of this guy? What, what do we have to do here? And here's the interesting. The Lord uses a non-believer to speak into existence the very plan of God, to prophesy 
to say, this is what's going to happen. He uses the high priest Caiaphas. Now, throughout history, as we read our Bibles, Caiaphas was not a very good leader. He was a brutal dictator, a brutal leader. And so look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was probably a Sadducee, um, who was the high priest that year, said to them, just listen how he talks to these people, to the, the Sanhedrin. He says, you guys know nothing at all. He's like, you guys are idiots. He's like, shut up and listen. Here's the deal. You don't know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you, for me, that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. Verse 51. And he did not say this on his own. The Lord spoke through him. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Not only for the nation Israel, but also this one man, this Jesus would die for the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And what Caiaphas is basically saying is he basically predicts the vicarious atonement of Christ. And what I mean by vicarious atonement is, is the idea of one man being a substitute for everyone else. Through Christ's life, through Christ's death on the cross, through his resurrection, salvation would come to not only the nation Israel, but also to you and me. So here we see an unregenerate, hard-hearted, non-believer speak the very truths of God. It's incredible. But here's the ironic thing about this. Even though the statement is true and solid, the reasoning behind it, the, the presuppositions in which Caiaphas says it in his mind, is it thinks it's actually going to lead to the the salvation of their lifestyle, when in fact it does the exact opposite. What Caiaphas says is actually be fatal for, for him and the Sanhedrin. The very thing that they're trying to preserve would come undone. His reasoning was this, follow Jesus and our nation and our powers perish. Put Jesus to death and our nation and our power is what? Saved. Therefore, Jesus must be put to death so that we can keep our position in power. And again, what the ironic thing is, is that the exact opposite happened. This was their plan, but Jesus was working, or God was working an entirely different plan, because when the Jews killed Jesus, when they arrested him, and when they tortured him, and then when they killed him, they thought, we're free, finally, life as we know it will be abundant. And in fact, the exact opposite happened. The process of Rome coming in and taking over and destroying Jerusalem and the temple and the nation would happen some couple years later in 70 A.D. And this is the mistake that a lot of people make that don't know Jesus. They, um, they think that if we get rid of Jesus, we gain and still can walk in life and have life abundantly. But it's actually the opposite is true. When you gain Jesus, you don't lose life, you gain life. You gain abundant life. Um, when you get rid of Jesus, you get put under, under bondage and sin. That will ultimately lead to death and destruction, as we see here with Caiaphas. But the opposite of true, if you bring and receive Christ in his life, death, if you see him as the Son of God, your Messiah, your Savior, you receive life in that abundantly. Not only for this life, but more importantly, for life eternal. But something else is even going on here that John points out, and that is, again, God uses men and women that don't know Jesus to speak truth into your life and to my life. Sometimes we can get into this mode, it's like, hey, you don't know Jesus, you have nothing to say to me. You can't talk to or speak anything into my life. And what we see here is God sometimes uses non-believers to do that, to speak the very truth of God to our lives through them. Uh, this was really clearly embedded in my mind when I was in middle school. 
Um, um, I was part of a little soccer team. We traveled to California to, to play in a tournament in California. And we uh, got up early and we didn't really eat breakfast. We just wanted to hit to the beach. And as we were walking to the beach, we saw this gated community resort, right? And there were Porsches and Lamborghinis and all this stuff in there. So we're like, well, we, right, we got to go see what this thing's all about, right? So we hopped the fence, right? Got 10 of these little teenagers. We hopped the fence. And we're going around, and, and there's so much good stuff in this story, but I'm going to keep it to this, this wisdom. Um, we were starving, and all of a sudden, one of the guys says, hey, Aaron, guys, look, look in that room over there. We're like, what? They're like, there's coffee. And we're like, there's coffee. That's great. We don't drink coffee. He goes, no, but where there's coffee, there's donuts, Right? <laughs> And we were like, yes, that is wisdom from above right there, right? And we went and ate. Now, that's a, a, obviously a silly uh, you know, illustration of that. But in the more serious note, there have been men. There have been coaches. Um, there have been ladies that, that do not know the Lord, and yet they speak into my life on how to be a better husband, how to be a better father. They speak the truths of Scripture uh, to me, even though they don't know it. Because God has wired all of us with a, a general uh, revelation that we all have. And so the, here, John is pointing out that through Caiaphas, God is doing something. He's using these non-believers to speak the very words and the truth of God to us. So this is what we see first and foremost on how they respond. The second response we see is really a lifestyle of worship. We see a lifestyle of worship. Now let's take us to chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him, and Martha served. And so what do we read here? We see a, a different scene. We go from uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees scheming the plot to arrest and kill Jesus, to now we go to another response, and we, see, uh, we go to a dinner party. We go to a house party. We go to people celebrating who Jesus is. Their response is that of worship. Their response is that of fearless faith and honoring Jesus. Why do we say fearless faith? Because we just also read just before a couple of verses before that says that the Sanhedrin put out an order. The order was what? If anyone knows who Jesus is, come and tell us immediately so we can go arrest him and then kill him. These guys don't care. They see Jesus in the midst of chaos, in the midst of persecution, they throw him a party. Fearless faith. They know what's been the order that's been out, the hit that's been on Jesus, and yet they don't care. They throw him a big party. Now, John highlights mainly two women um, who have been kind of the centerpiece of John 11 and here in, in, in John chapter 12, Mar Mary and Martha. Uh, their brother Lazarus, again, was the one dead, and John also highlights him just a little bit. But mainly this point is looking at the response of Mary and Martha, two women who love Jesus. And it gives us profound insight as followers of Christ on how they respond. First, we see how Martha responds. And Martha shows her faith. Martha shows her devotion. Martha shows her love to Jesus through how? Serving, right? Now, are we shocked by that? Are we like, whoa, that's, that's, well, we never would have guessed that coming from Martha, right? No, because every time we see Martha, she is wired like this. She is wired to serve. She's a get-it-done type of gal. She's the one that initiates things and gets after it. The one thing that does, so maybe my surprise is here, when we see this, we don't hear any complaining from her, do we? As we've seen in the last 
um, scenes where she is serving. Oh, how about Mary? She's not helping me. I'm the one running around. She's not helping me, Jesus. Say something to her. Here we see she's just serving with her heart out of love and devotion. Her brother has been restored back to life. And she is, is, is serving and responding to Jesus the best way she knows how. And that is to serve. Martha serves. And we rejoice in that. One thing I absolutely love about this church, about the crossing, is we have some incredible servants. We have a number of people whose lives have been changed by the gospel, by Jesus' life. And they, they proclaim with their words, but not only their words, their actions by serving. By, by laying down their needs to serve other people's needs. And I could give you story after story after story of individuals in here, but the ones that immediately came to mind were some of the single people in here. Those uh, young men and those young women. They, the singles in the crossing have a, a tremendous impact and influence here at the crossing. Uh, they, the Lord has gifted them to be a part of this body, and because of that, this body is better. But the one way in which I see them serving the way they respond to believing that, that Jesus is the Son of God is in children's church, right? Children's ministry in churches is some of the hardest places to staff, right? For whatever reason, no one wants to watch people's kids. People, heck, you're all, let's just be honest in here, parents. You don't want to watch your own kids in here. That's why you're not you know, signed up for that, some of that stuff. And yet, we have these single people that want to serve, and the way they serve is by teaching your kids about Jesus. They're not their kids, right? But yet they have a heart and passion to serve your, your, you and your kids. And, that, and to me, that speaks volumes. I absolutely love that about the young people at this church. They get service. And the reason why they get service is because they know Jesus. So that's one thing. Second, we see Lazarus. And and you're like, well, let's just read it. It says, so they gave a dinner for them. Martha served, and Lazarus was just one of those reclining at the table. So you're like, well, how's that a response? All he's doing is sitting back there and eating and drinking. And it's like, well, when you're raised from the dead, uh, all you have to do is show up, right? And your, and your life is going to speak louder than words, right? You just got to show up. And that's what we see at Lazarus. He just shows up. The interesting thing about Lazarus, as we read throughout Scripture, and as famous as Lazarus is, he never speaks. As far Now, he speaks, but not quoted in the Scripture. We never see him say something. We see Mary say something. We see Martha say something. But we never see Lazarus say something. Jesus uses Lazarus as, again, exhibit A. Actions speak louder than words. Nazareth is just a man who was raised from the dead, and wherever he shows up, you see the grace of God in his life. And that's how John portrays Lazarus. Now let's go third, Mary, and really she's the focal point of this story. And her response, and her response. Her response, again, takes center stage in this passage, and she shows her love, she shows her devotion. By what? By quality time. She's again where? At the feet of Jesus. Every time we see Mary in the stories, in the Gospels, where is she? She's, she's at the feet of Jesus. Quality time. She can't get enough. She's got to be around Jesus. And that's what we see her now in this story. Now, we look at Mary, and she's like, oh, she's the meek. She's the mild one. You know, she's the quiet one. She's the reserved one. You know, Martha's the outgoing sister. Mary's the one that's kind of behind the scenes. Martha's out front. Mary's behind the scenes. Doesn't, you know, want anyone. 
But yet she does something that is absolutely radical and blows people's mind. Not only back then, but lasts throughout all of church history for the past 2,000 years. Matthew also records this story, and this is what Jesus says about Martha's response. He says this in Matthew 26, 13. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she, Mary, has done will also be told in memory of her. That is her legacy. She has a, a worldwide. She has a legacy that lasts from generation to generation to generation of what she has done. The quiet one, the meek one, is known as the one in which Jesus says what she has done has a legacy that will never end. It's an incredible thing to do. Now, again, we're highlighting Mary and Martha, and I just want to highlight this, is that, again, in this culture, women weren't looked upon highly. They were the low men and women on the totem pole, right? They didn't have much say. They didn't have much influence. And yet, throughout the Gospels, Jesus elevates women to power, to influence. That, that, that you look at the book of Acts, we've also seen the incredible, again, thumbprint, uh, imprint that women have on the church, and it has also lasts for 2,000 years. And one thing I also love about this church is the women that we have that are, are, are led by the Spirit of God, informed by the gospel of God, and that um, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by that they, they use their gifts, they use their words, they use their, again, their uh, ability as uh, females to serve and grow the kingdom of God. And this is what, again, we see and we can learn from Mary, as well as Martha, as well as the other women here at the crossing. So what did she do? What did she do? What did she do? John 12, 3. Mary therefore took a pound, a pound means roughly 11 or 12 ounces, of this expensive ointment or perfume made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. Now this scene is absolutely jaw-dropping if you and I were there. We would be stunned. And I love how John writes here. I mean, he engages our senses. He engages our eyes. And he sees this woman take this, this, this expensive ointment, this perfume, and, 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 and he, she dumps it all over Jesus in both accounts. It's his body here. It's just the context is his feet. You, you see her undo her hair, which is a sign of humility. You see her get on her knees, and you see her use her hair to wipe up this uh, ointment off her feet, which that position was only for the lowliest of servants there. But she doesn't care because she's worshiping Jesus. She just wants to be around Jesus. And all of a sudden you have this incredible aroma. You can just picture this this scene and how beautiful. I love love how John writes a jaw-dropping scene. And again, this uh, aromatic herb that that she uses to anoint. Jesus comes from Himalayas. It's a very expensive perfume. And she dumps it all over his feet. Judas tells us in in verse 5 on how much this perfume costs and how expensive it was. He says it was a 300 dinari. One, one dinari was uh, about a year, uh, was a day's laborer's wage, one. So 300 is about a, a, a yearly wage. You count off the, the vacations and the festivals where they're not working. It's about 300 days, and that's about a year's wage. She took this bottle of perfume. Maybe it was a, a heirloom or something along those lines that was given for, you know, for burial and for, for things like this. And, and she was supposed to save it for a very special occasion, and this was it. To dump a year's wage of perfume on the feet of Jesus. That's incredible. 
Think about that for a second. I mean, let's really pause and think about that. Think about how much you make in a year, right? Back then, some say it was about ten to fifteen thousand dollars to add inflation to that. The year twenty seventeen. Well, how much do you make in a year? Twenty thousand, fifty thousand, eighty thousand, hundred thousand, more than that? I don't know. What do you make in a year? Mary saw who Jesus was. The Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that caused a response of worship for her. And it seems like it's almost effortless. It doesn't even seem like this is a sacrifice. You know, it was a great sacrifice, but yet she dumps it out. Why? Because she's just, she's just exercising an outward act of an inward reality. She sees who Jesus is and worships him. Have you ever had such an overwhelming urge to worship Jesus like that? That you recognize, that I recognize who Jesus is, the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, the God who spoke and this creation came to existence. Have you ever been to that place where you're so in tune with the reality of who Jesus is that you do something like this? You give away your year's wage. This is incredible. This is radical. Pause and think about this. Many of us know this story, but feel the weight of her worship and her love for Jesus. She takes this bottle, years worth of wage, and puts it on his feet. Again, this action is an outward response of an inward reality of her heart and her love for Jesus. And this is the takeaway from us. Do we love Jesus so much that it would cause us to do something crazy like that? This is a simple question. Now, one thing I want to kind of make clear. Some pastors will use this to say you guys need to give your yearly wage to the church, right? If, you want, if you're a real person of faith, this is what you do. That's not what this text is saying. This is not prescriptive. This is not an imperative. This is not a command for you and me to give a year's worth of wage to the church or to Jesus to prove our love for him. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is descriptive. It's describing something. It's describing Mary's love for Jesus. And this is the way she shows it. This is her heart response, that I'm going to take this perfume and I'm going to anoint Jesus with it to show him my love, my dedication to her. The one thing I love, again, about the crossing is we've had people do radical things like this. We, we've, we've had people uh, maybe pick up their family and move to a different city like Durango or move to a different country to serve Jesus because they believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And so they'll pick up their whole life, they'll uproot their whole life where it's comfortable, where they have friends, where they have family to go somewhere and be obedient to Jesus. We have had people that have given large sums of money to bless this body and to bless people in this body. We have people that, that adopt other kids that, that need the love and the security and the peace to bring you know, someone from outside their family, to bring them in and call them their own son and daughter. And by the way, I don't know if you guys caught what Beth said. We set a record at the court, all right? That's pretty cool. It's overwhelming. We have people do that at a big scale, at a grand scale. 
because of their love and passion and heart for Jesus, it causes us, it causes people to do something radical for them, where people step back and go, whoa, that was crazy. Have you ever had that thought? You know, maybe you're sitting there and you're kind of just going through cruise control right now, kind of status quo Christianity. You know, you're being a good Christian, which is awesome. You know, maybe you read your Bible, you're coming to church on Sundays, that's awesome. You're going to life group, great. You're discipling one another, awesome. But it's, it's just kind of status quo. You're kind of just checking boxes, kind of just going through the motions. Maybe the Lord might be saying today through this passage, I need, I, I want to do something radical in you. He's prompting your heart right now to, to get out of the status quo. So, so pray and see if the Lord might ask you to be taking a, a step of faith somewhere in a big way. But also, maybe it's not something that's radical in such a, a, a big way right now. Maybe today you're in here and you just, the Lord's just calling you to make a simple step. He's just asking you to take a, a, a small step. Yeah, you believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And you just need to maybe manage your schedule a little better. Maybe rearrange your schedule a little better. Uh, to spend more time uh, at life group. So maybe create the time when some of you that aren't going to life group, maybe say, man, I'm going to rearrange my schedule so I can make it to life group. So I can be with other believers that are going to help me grow in godliness. Or, or maybe you're there and maybe you need to tweak your schedule to get into a discipleship group, to get into a journey group, because you're not getting that right now. You're getting discipled more from the world and the culture than you are from God's Word. So maybe that's it. Or maybe it's just so you can spend a little bit more time with your own family, with your own kids. Maybe it's just that small step. The implications of seeing Jesus Christ as the Son of God and how you spend your time. Maybe it's how you spend your talents. You have tremendously gifted individuals in this room. A lot of times what happens as a church is God has given you this gift and yet you use it all outside of the body of Christ. Maybe he's calling you to take a step of faith and to, to use your gift here at the crossing in some form or fashion. When I say in here, I don't mean this building. I mean in this body, in people's lives, serving one another. And maybe it is with your talent, with your treasure, with your money. You know, maybe the You've been calling the cross in your home for years, and yet you haven't been consistently serving and worshiping the Lord by giving your resources, which is commanded by God. So maybe it's a small step that the Lord is asking you to take this morning to respond to Him as your Savior, as your Messiah, as the Son of God. You know, Mary and Martha again give us a glimpse in what uh, it looks like for people whose hearts have been captivated by the truth that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And this is what it looks like for them. It produces worship in ways that the Lord has gifted them in. How about you this morning? How are you responding to Jesus? Is it more on the lines of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Maybe you walk in here with a hard heart. Maybe someone drug you in here and you're like, oh, this Jesus thing again. And you see that if I, I get rid of Jesus, I get life. And we plead with you, no, no, it's the exact opposite. If you receive Jesus, you get life. If you get rid of Jesus, you get bondage and ultimately death. And so we want you to see, we want to see you get life. Or maybe do you come in here like a, a Mary and Martha and you respond by, by living for him, 
the way he's wired and designed you. We see a third response here, and we'll do this quickly. Um, and I, I had another better, never uh, adjective than a hidden reef, as Jude uses. He talks to people about hidden reefs. There are also people inside the church who have an appearance of responding to Jesus outwardly with pure motives in spiritual ways, but their heart tells a very different story. This is Judas. This is what we see Judas. Verse 4 of chapter 12, But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Like, what a waste. You wasted all this money on Jesus' feet. We could have done something great with it, something spiritual. Verse 6 says, He was not saying this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bags he used to help himself or skim or steal what was put into it. So what we see here is we see a man who has a different agenda in his heart, but outwardly he says something else that sounds spiritual. Um, we, we, every now and then, we deal with people like Judas um, here at the crossing. They walk through the doors of the crossing. They are people that look good. They are people that smell good. They are people that, you know, talk the talk and, and walk the walk, at least outwardly. But their motives and agenda are evil. Um, they are liars. They are thieves. They're looking to build their own kingdom and not Jesus' kingdom. One the, the characteristic that John highlights here is that Judas is a critic. He's constantly criticizing people that are living for Jesus. Hey, look at Mary. What did she do? She just wasted all that money. We could have done something more spiritual with it. Hey, what about that message? Aaron said this. Oh, he, it would have been better if he would have said it this way. Oh, look at how that person you know, gives money to there. They, wouldn't it be better if they would have gave it to, to my agenda, what I think? You know, you, you know the people that we're talking about. The ones that are constantly criticizing people and their actions. And they, and they, and they do it in a holiness tone. They, they, they kind of take it and they use the, the, the principles of Scripture and put a facade around the real heart motives. We know these people. I'll just sum it up. The best way I heard it summed up like this is they have a good mouth but a wicked heart. Got to watch out for those people here at the crossing because they do exist. They're in the church. Judas was one of the disciples. So they respond as, as hidden reefs. But then we look at verse 7. And I love how Jesus responds to Mary after she does this act, her, her, her worship. He says, leave her alone that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Not only was there a, a response from Mary's heart, but what she was doing, I believe she, she, she was also saying something about who Jesus was. She, she got what Jesus was saying. Jesus says, I was the Messiah. I am the, the Christ. I am the one who's going to come, and I'm going to die. And many commentators believe that, that Mary was probably the first person that got the message of Jesus. It resonated with her because not only is she, she doing this, but she was doing this because she was preparing Jesus' body. Mary gets, Jesus says, Mary gets who I am and what I've come to do. She understands that I'm here to fulfill the prophecy that Caiaphas says, that I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what Mary is doing when she's dumping this is anointing Jesus' body for burial. She believed and responded accordingly. The question to you and me this morning is, do you believe? 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who's come to be your substitute? And if you believe that, have you responded accordingly by repenting and trusting in Him? And now by your life, living that out. If so, how does that show up in your life? That's what Mary and Martha and Lazarus and these responses are. It's, a, it's, just, it's just to give us a little tester in our life to say, how are we responding? If we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, how does that produce a response in our life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these responses of these people some 2,000 years ago, and yet they have great implications for our lives this morning. And I pray everyone in here, first and foremost, would, would know you as their Lord and as their Savior, as their atoning sacrifice, the substitute that was made on their behalf. And for those of us that have, by the grace of God, Lord, I pray that we would just look at our lives and say, um, do we need to take a, a small step or do we need to respond with a big step this morning? Again, not to prove or earn or merit anything. These are implications. These are fruits of what you have already done in our lives. And so, Lord, give us wisdom uh, to live out, eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have for us this morning as individuals who love you and want to respond to you by the way you've gifted us as we believe that you are the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.